One of the worst feelings in the, in the world is when you get lost, right? Now, I'm a guy, so I'm not going to ask for directions. I'm just going to figure it out. But it's such a bad feeling. You know what a worse feeling than that is? When you lose your family members, when you lose some loved ones, like you can't find them, they can't find you, they're just lost. And on that note, let me tell you a story. So this summer, we were able to do a family vacation. We went for about seven or eight days up to the UP in Michigan, Upper Peninsula. How many of you have been there? It's so beautiful, right? You got the pristine, crystal clear blue waters of Lake Superior. You have all these rivers and waterfalls forests, trees, the cliffs, and rock formations. It's gorgeous. In fact, I'm a Colorado boy. Did you know the Midwest has mountains? If you would have told me that the Midwest has ski resorts, I would have told you you're smoking something. Also, again, because I'm from Colorado. (laughs) And so we are slowly making our way, and my wife and I vacation very differently, right? She loves quality. Let's do a few things and do them really well. I want quantity. I want to see everything. I want to do everything. And so we should have vacationed like she wanted to, but we vacationed like I wanted to. So there was no rest from sun up to sundown, right? I mean, it was just boom, 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 on the go, seeing this. And it was fun, sightseeing, hiking, tons of hiking. And we get to like the second to last day, and we're in the Porcupine Mountains, if you've ever been there. Beautiful, lush mountains. And we've done so much hiking, miles of hiking, and Sky is just like, the girls are tired. I'm tired. No more. No moss. Please, no more hiking. And I'm like, okay, all right. And we're driving along, and I see a sign that says, point of interest, hiking area, (laughs) old mine hiking trail. And I'm like, well, we got to do that. (laughs) What if it's like an old mine from the 1800s? We love, don't don't we love ruins? We got to see that. She's like, fine, because she's so gracious. And so we pull in, and we're doing the hiking trail, which is so gorgeous. I mean, it was along this river, this creek. There were little waterfalls. It was in the forest, in the woods. And we're going along, and I look back, and the girls are going, (laughs) right? If you have little kids, you know what I'm talking about. You can make 10 steps, and they're, ah. And then Sky is, "Ah." no, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) uh, The girls are tired. You know, Sky's tired, I'm tired, and I look back, and I realize they don't want to hike anymore. And so, I, and so along this way, by the way, there were no ruins for an old mine. There were all these plaques. Like, there was a plaque that said, here's where there used to be a wheel. And there, I don't, apparently the guy who wrote it's an old prospector. But <laughs> we're going along all these plaques. I'm like, I don't, I can, that's what Wikipedia is for. I don't want to read these plaques. I want to see some mines. And so we go along, no mines. And so I said, all right, I tell you what, I'm going to go ahead of you guys. And I'm just going to run down the trail, and I'll see if there are any old mine ruins. And if there are, I'll come back and say, let's keep going. If not, we can go back to the car. And so I left my wife and daughters in the middle of a forest with no cell phone reception and just went on my merry way. And I hiked another mile, mile and a half. And then dawned on me, you idiot. (laughs) What have you done? There's no cell phone reception. They're probably going to get eaten by wolves. They're going to come across an old drifter. Like, what? What have you done? And so I turn around and I start running back. And I get to where they were and they ain't there anymore. Then I go back to the car. They're not at the car. Then I run the entire loop. They're nowhere to be found. And I realize there are all these little tangents of hiking trails they could have taken. 
And so I get to a spot where I actually have cell phone, cell phone reception, one bar, and I call, first of all, Sky, not picking up, goes right to voicemail. Then I call the ranger office. I'm like, my family's gone. I've been separated them for an hour. They're probably eaten by wolves. Can please send someone? And so the ranger said, oh, all right. And he comes, tell him what's happened. He's like, all right. Like, he's done this before. And he just kind of apathetically goes down the trail. I'm like, you know, put the lead to it, buddy. And so he starts going down. And 30 minutes pass. And now I'm calling the ranger office again. Send another ranger. The other ranger lost, lost himself. He's gone. Send the SWAT team. We need more reinforcements. Another 15 minutes pass. And the ranger truck comes up. And here's the first ranger with a second ranger. And in the back seat are our little girls with Sky. And she just does this. <laughs> and I'm filled with such exuberance. I'm reconciled to my family. I'm with them together again, followed by immediate dread. Oh, no. Now, she is and was extremely gracious. But, man, I just wanted to be with my family. I wanted to be reconciled again. And I didn't know if they knew the way to find me. I didn't know the way to find them. I could care less if they found a place, the car, the ranger station. I wanted them to find a person, me. And Jesus is telling his disciples you want to be at home with the Lord? Good. I know the way. I'm the way. I'm the way to get there. So turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, we're continuing in our Upper Room Discourse sermon series. And we read this passage last week. We're going to read it again this morning. And I'm going to ask, again, in reverence for God's word, would you guys stand with me? John 14, verse 1. Jesus is telling his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. But from now on, you do know him and have seen him. You guys can be seated. Jesus' disciples had followed him for three years in his ministry, constantly at his side, 24-7, 365, for three years they had followed Jesus. They left everything to follow Jesus. They left their possessions, their positions, their families to follow Jesus. And they saw him do incredible things. I mean, there was no doubt that this man from Nazareth was the Messiah. And so they had no intentions of not following him. They had no intentions of leaving him. And Jesus said, follow me. And so they followed him until now he says, that's end of the line here. You followed me, but you can follow me no longer, at least at this point. You will follow me later. You'll be with me where I am later, but you can't follow me now. End of the line. And so their hearts are distraught. Inner turmoil. Their hearts are troubled. And Jesus says, let your hearts not be troubled. There was an old sketch, an old skit with Bob Newhart. You guys remember Bob Newhart? Where he's playing a counselor or a therapist, and he's meeting with this lady who has claustrophobia. And so she's talking about her issues, and she says, I'm just scared to death of being buried alive in a box. And so he's talking with her, and he says, oh, okay, I'm, I'm going to um, I'm gonna give you some advice right now. Oh, okay. She pulls out a pen and paper. He says, um, 
All right, I want you to remember this. She said, should I write it down? Well, it's two words. I'm going to give you two words. Okay, I'll write them down. Well, I find that people can remember two words. So here are the two words. You ready for this? Oh, yeah, I'm ready. You, you, you really ready for this? You ready for this advice? Oh, yeah. Stop it! <laughs> She's like, what? Just stop it! By the way, so many times in ministry, I just want to, I'm thinking that internally. Just stop it! As I'm meeting with someone, he's thinking, just stop it! And you look at this, and you're like, is Jesus saying your hearts are troubled? Just stop it! Well, not so much. Because, yes, they have internal turmoil. But he's not just telling them to stop it. He gives them powerful, reassuring truths. He says, believe in God. Believe also in me. In the same way you believe in God, in the Father, believe in me. We talked about this last week. Trust in Jesus is the antidote to a troubled heart. Belief in Jesus is the steadying factor for the tempest of our heart. And then he goes further. He gives further reassuring truths. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. Because in my Father's house are many rooms. Undoubtedly, he's talking about heaven. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I will come again, and I'm going to get you. I'm going to bring you to myself, that where I am, you will be also. So Jesus is not in heaven building on an addition to his Father's house. He's not renovating some rooms in heaven. The rooms are already ready. The thing is, here's the problem, they are shut tight to sinners. Because God is holy, and sinners cannot be in the presence of a holy God. And so the rooms are ready. They are shut tight to sinners. And Jesus is saying, oh, but I go to prepare a way. I'm going to open the door for you so that you can be with me where I am in the Father's glory, in my glory forever and ever and ever. Jesus is preparing a way for his followers to be with him forever. And then you get to verse 4. And Jesus says, listen, where I'm going, you know the way. And verse 5, Thomas. I love Thomas. Thomas has the nickname what? Doubting Thomas. But I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's accurate. It really should be direct Thomas. Because he just, he just speaks his mind. He's that guy that constantly is putting a foot in his mouth. Just the honest, candidly, tell it like it is guy. We know this because in John 11, Jesus is, before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he tells his disciples, hey, we're going to go back to Judea. And there's like, but Jesus, the Jews are trying to kill you there. Yeah, we're going to go. Thomas says, all right. Let's go die with Jesus. I mean, he's just the tell-it-like-it-is guy. And so he's honest here. He is admitting what the others won't, and he asks what the others are thinking. Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How in the world could we know the way? In fact, the way he words it is this. How are we able to know the way? Like, come on, Jesus. Lord, we don't even know what you're talking about we don't even know your next travel destination, and if we don't know where you're going, how in the world could we ever know how to get there? I imagine if someone said, hey, I want you to come to our house for dinner tonight. Oh, that sounds awesome. We would love that. We'd be honored. Great. Yes, we'd love to come join you at your house tonight for dinner. Where is it? It's at our house. Okay. I, I, I get that. But, like, what, what's the address? Oh, don't worry. You'll, you'll figure it out. Okay, is it like one of those houses that doesn't have an address? Like you enter it in the Google Maps and just goes nowhere? Like is it out in the boonies, out in the country? That, that's fine. Okay. Can you at least give me directions? How do, I, how, do I, how do we get there? You know the way to get there. Oh, and by the way, when you arrive, you'll know that you've arrived. Oh. 
I'm just going to order pizza and stay home. Like, you can, you can see, there's, there's, you can sense some bewilderment among the disciples. You sense some frustration among them. We know this because if you look in John 16, 29, the disciples say this, finally, Jesus, you speak plainly, not using figurative speech. They're like, Jesus, why do you always got to speak in riddles? Why was Jesus being so enigmatic? Well, first of all, he's actually not. He disclosed to them very plainly, very clearly of his death, burial, and resurrection over and over and over. We know that because at least six recorded times in the Gospels, Jesus tells them what's going to happen. They just didn't want to believe it. They didn't want to admit it. They didn't want to accept it. You know, ignorance is bliss until it's not. The disciples were thinking of geographical locations. Jesus is talking about spiritual realities. As we get to verse 6, and Jesus says, all right, you want to know the way? I'll tell you the way. I am the way. John, the apostle in his gospel, records seven powerful mind-boggling, metaphorical I am statements. And all of them correspond with him saying he's the way, the truth, and life. So in chapter 6, John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Corresponds with life. In John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Now what does light do? Light shines on something. It dispels the darkness so you see things for how they really are. You see true realities. Corresponds with truth. And then in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the door of my sheep. I'm the entrance. I'm the gate. I'm the way in. Later in that chapter, he says, I am the good shepherd. Now, what do shepherds do? They guide their sheep. They help their sheep. They care for the sheep. They guide their sheep along the way. Then in John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then in John 15, which we'll get to early next year, Jesus says, I am the true vine. So that corresponds to both truth and life. Because Jesus says, you have nothing apart from me. You have no life apart from me. Only in me do you have life. I am the way, the truth, the life. And the world claims to have the way to happiness. The world makes all kinds of truth claims. The world professes a number of things that bring real life and meaning and purpose. But Jesus, notice, he's not, saying, he's not using the indefinite article, a. Uh. He doesn't say, I am a way, a truth, and a life. He uses a definite article, I am the way, the truth, the life. I'm it. And some translators even suggest he's saying, I am the way, I am truth, I am life. Ooh, that's good. I like that. He embodies truth. He embodies life. He's not claiming to know the way of truth and life as if to impart that knowledge onto anyone interested. He is claiming to be these things. And that is what is so astounding about this statement. Jesus doesn't mince words. In these I am statements, Jesus is saying it's all about him. He says, I am. Now that should conjure up a Hebrew word. What Hebrew word should be coming to your mind right now? It's actually a name. Yahweh. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses is meeting with the Lord, and Moses says, okay, but what should I, what should I call you? How do I refer to you? What, who do I say 
sent me to the Israelites? What do I tell them? And God says, I am. God is so big. He's so beyond human diction. He can't even be boxed in by a name. He just says, I just am. I am who I am. And it's the Hebrew word, Yahweh. Undoubtedly, when Jesus makes these I am statements, I am the bread of life. I am the way, truth, and life. In John 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. He is referring to Yahweh. By saying I am, Jesus is claiming to be the one true God. Jesus is revealing who he is. And this particular I am statement is significant. I am the destination. Where I am, you will also be, and you should want to be. Remember, the best place to be is any place Jesus is. He is what makes heaven, heaven. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there, amen? And so he is saying, I am the destination, I am the end to the means, but also I am the means to that end. I'm the means to get there. So Jesus is the destination and he's the GPS. Now let's break down this well-known verse. First of all, he says, I am the way. Jesus is the way. The word for way means road or path. A road connects two destinations. The shortest distance between point A and point B is a straight line. And so the way bridges the gap. It brings together. It makes a link between two places or two persons. So Jesus says, I am the way. Okay, Jesus. The way to what? Well, look again at verse 6. He makes it very clear in the second half of the verse and on down, verse 7 and following, he's talking about, I am the way to the Father. I am the way to the Father. He doesn't say no one comes to the Father's house but by me. He says no one comes to the Father but by me. He's talking about he's the way to God. It's not about a place. It's about a person, and that person is God. So in this case, the way is the link between God and sinners. The way reconciles the two. In 1939, there was a movie that came out with Judy Garland playing Dorothy called The Wizard of Oz. And here, Dorothy from Kansas wakes up in this fantastical realm with all these little people around her called munchkins. That's not derogatory. That's what they called themselves. And here are these munchkins, and they start singing, you have to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. Right? And there's one way to get to the wizard. There's one way to get to the Emerald City. How do you get to the Emerald City? Follow the yellow brick road. Follow the yellow brick road. You know, there was a, a book that came out in the 1600s by John Bunyan that is one of the best, I mean, it's a Christian classic, so good. One of the best Christian fish, fiction books I've ever read. How many of you have ever read Pilgrim's Progress? If you're not raising your hand, you need to like download the book. It's probably free online. You need to read it this year. It's so good. And the story is a little similar to Wizard of Oz. So you have this character who becomes a Christian, and his name is Christian. Very creative. And so Christian wants to get to the, to the celestial city, it's called. And so he encounters different characters, some good, some nefarious, 
And the good characters tell him how to get to the celestial city, which is with Jesus, which is heaven. And so he encounters all these different uh, people, and, and they say, you need to take the king's highway to get to the celestial city. Well, of course, Christian gets distracted, and he gets diverted, and he goes off of the way, and he gets back on the way. But the point is, there's one way and only one way. You have to take the king's highway. Jesus is saying, I am the king's highway. You want to get to the celestial city. You want to get to the Father. There is no way but me. I am the way. And many religious leaders, many people claim to know the way. Very few claim to be the way. Jesus isn't saying, I'm going to show you the way. Jesus is the way to God the Father. Specifically, a restoration of deep, intimate, beautiful, personal fellowship with God. And not later, by the way, immediately, now, you can have life with God. We talked about this last week, but in Genesis 1 and 2, you have mankind, Adam and Eve, humanity, dwelling with God in the garden, walking with God in personal, intimate, deep fellowship. Oh, how beautiful. And then we get to chapter 3, and it's like we said, "Mm, that's not good enough. Thanks, but no thanks. You know what, I know that you are the way, but I'm going to try to make my own way, which really isn't a way. And so we reject the way, and we try to make our own way, and that way is now the way that leads only to death and destruction. And we all have done it. In fact, that's what we call sin. And so deep down, every person, Christian, atheist, Muslim, agnostic, doesn't matter, we have this deep down longing to be at home with the Lord once again. We're homesick. And Jesus is saying, I know the way to get back home with the Lord. Yes, you are homesick. I know the way to have that close, beautiful fellowship with the Father. I'm the way back to that. And if humanity is to be restored and returned to dwelling with God and walking with the Father, it's only through me. He is the mediator between God and man, restoring us, bridging the gap. Now, you may be thinking, okay, But if Jesus is God, which he claimed to be, and the Father is God, and there's only one God, how could Jesus be the way to God? Well, Jesus, the Son of God, and the Father are one and yet different. Does that make perfect sense to you? Is that clear as mud? Come back next week, we're going to talk about it, and actually the next several weeks as we talk about the Trinitarian, the triune nature of God, But Jesus is saying, I am God, and I am the way to God. Only Jesus could prepare the way. How? Through the rugged cross and the empty tomb. The way of God is only through the cross of Christ. And then Jesus doubles down, and he says, I am the way. Oh, and no one comes. Nada, nothing. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's this theological doctrine called the exclusivity of Christ. The exclusivity of Christ, which essentially is this. Jesus is saying, I am the only way. I am the only means to salvation in God. I'm the only way back to God. I'm the only way to have true life. It's exclusively through me. There are not multiple paths as suggested by religious pluralism. 
Religious pluralism says, oh, all paths lead to God. Many paths lead to God. All paths are valid. All ways are good. All religions, all faiths, they're all valid. They're all true. Have you guys seen the coexist bumper sticker? Anybody seen that? That is like the epitome of religious pluralism. So it spells out coexist in all these religious symbols, all these religious emblems, saying, oh, all these are valid, all these are true. And they're saying, well, you can't have monopoly on theological truth. Everything's valid, everything is true. And in our society of religious pluralism, what Jesus is saying here, what he is claiming here is audacious, arrogant, narrow-minded, perhaps even intolerant and bigoted. Is it? Is this narrow-minded arrogance? There's a parable, not a biblical parable, but there's a parable that came out centuries ago. It's, it's, you hear it prominently in Buddhism and, and uh, Hinduism. And it's the parable of the blind men and the elephant. And it, it perfectly describes religious pluralism. So the parable goes like this. Imagine you have all these blind men, this group of blind men, and they have heard about this elephant. They've never seen an elephant because they're blind. They've been born blind. So they don't know what an elephant is or looks like. But someone tells him, hey, you are near an elephant. And so one of the blind men grabs the trunk. He says, oh, okay. A blind, uh, an elephant is like a large snake. Another one grabs one of the legs. No, I think, a blind, uh, I mean, I think a, an elephant is like a tree trunk. It's like a column. Another one puts its hands on its side. No, I think it's like a wall. Another one grabs its tail. No, I think it's like rope. Another one grabs its ear. No, I think it's like a fan. An elephant is like a fan. Another one grabs its tusk. No, I think it's sharp. I think an elephant is like a spear. And first of all, whenever I hear this, I'm always wondering, what's the elephant thinking? Why are all these guys groping me? What is, what's going on here? But the idea is, when it's taught, that you see, they're all correct, they're all valid, they're all right, they're all true. And so therefore, everyone's viewpoints, everyone's worldview, everyone's religion, everyone's faith is valid. Here's the problem with that. The only way that parable works is if you, the listener, or someone as the viewer, knows what an elephant actually is. You actually have to step back and see these blind men touching the elephant, because we know what an elephant is. And so we know, actually, you're wrong. You guys are wrong. That's not what an elephant is. So this paragon of pluralism, this story, this parable, collapses in on itself and actually points to exclusive truth. So if Jesus is merely one more religious teacher among countless others, then yes, his claim would be absurd and arrogant. But what if, what if Jesus is himself God? What if he is the essence of absolute truth? Because Jesus doesn't say that he knows or merely speaks the truth. He claims to be the embodiment of truth. He doesn't say he can give life. He tells us he's the source of life itself. He doesn't say he's one pathway to God among many. He says, I am the only way. And so if he is truth, then yes, he has legitimacy to make this exclusive claim. And furthermore, why in the world would God, if he knew there was many paths to him, ever send the son of God, ever send his son to be incarnate, to be God in flesh, and die a horrific death to absorb our sins if there are other ways to him. Why would he do that? 
the atoning sacrifice of Christ is the only viable path to God. It is. I'm just telling you, if you stand by that truth, if you believe that truth, I promise you our world is going to say, we're arrogant and we're narrow-minded. Well, so be it. But actually, here's the thing. Jesus is either speaking truth or he's lying. So which is it? What do you believe about Jesus? Because one cannot be sincerely saved if you believe that Jesus is not the only way. If you believe there are many routes, alternate routes to God, then what you're saying is the cross of Christ was not sufficient. Which means, friend, you're not saved. And my pastoral shepherd's heart breaks for you, and I would urge you, please consider the the claim that Jesus is making, I am the way, there is no other way. Now, does the Bible affirm the exclusivity of Jesus? Well, you tell me. Look at Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. And then in John chapter 10, Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd. He says, truly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, like hopping over the fence, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Then he says in verse 9, get this, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out in and out and find pasture. He's saying you can't, there aren't ways, you can't hop over the fence. I am the only way in. And then in Ephesians 2.18, for through Jesus we have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, I could have given you so many more scriptures, but that's just a sampling. The only way to bridge the gap between God and man is for there to be one who is fully God and fully man, representing both to reconcile both. No one else is the son of God and son of man. No one else is God in flesh, so no one else could be the way for man and woman to be at home with God. Now, here's the thing, claiming to be the way that Jesus is doing, claiming to be the way is not arrogant bigotry. It's actually an inclusive invitation to anyone. Jesus isn't saying this is just for this kind of people or this type of people or for this geographic location or whatever the case may be, this background. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm the way, truth, and life, and anyone who accepts me has a way to God. You want to be with me where I am? Okay, here's the way. It's me. Follow me. And so the only ones his invitation excludes are unbelievers who reject it. Jesus is the way to the Father, but he's also the way to truth and life, which is the second thing. Jesus is truth. Have you ever met someone named Aletheia? It's a beautiful name. It's actually a Greek name. Aletheia is the Greek word for truth. And it's used in John's gospel 25 times compared to the other three gospels combined only seven times. It's a major theme in John's writings. And it's truth as opposed to falsehood. It's reality as opposed to figment of imagination. We see this word actually in Romans 1.25 where Paul says we exchange the truth, aletheia, of God in exchange for a lie. 
We took truth. We had access to truth. We saw creation and all God's created things, and we could see from his creation that there is a God. We can know attributes about God. But we took that truth of God and said, ah, thanks but no thanks, and exchanged it for fake news. Long before Trump or any politics, that's what we're exchanging truth for fake news. That's called sin. And sinners are sent to hell because they blatantly suppress the obvious, evident truth of God. That's what Romans 1 is saying. Now, is truth subjective? Is there such a thing as absolute truth? In our postmodern society that says all truth is relative, is that true? You know, postmodernism says there is no absolute truth. What's wrong with that statement? Let me, let me say it a different way. There absolute, I say to you this truth, there absolutely is no absolute truth. That in and of itself is an absolute truth claim. So again, it collapses in on itself. Jesus is saying, I'm not just truth, I am absolute truth. I am truth. Look at John chapter 18. In John 18, Jesus is meeting with Pontius Pilate, the governor, in verse 36. They have this fascinating dialogue. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into this world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, hmm, what is truth? That's the question, right? That's the question our society asks. And by the way, yes, not everyone is going to believe in Jesus. And yes, people might say that exclusive truth in Jesus is narrow-minded. We still need to show them love. We still need to show grace. We need to speak in love and grace, as Jesus does here. Pilate says, what is truth? Our society says, what is truth? Our world says, what is truth? And Jesus actually gives an answer, not verbally with words, but in action over the next several hours as he goes to the cross. He says, you want to know truth? Okay, I'll display truth for you as he's exalted on the cross and crucified on our behalf. Jesus is truth. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the truth? Well, Jesus proclaimed truth, but he also embodies truth. He brought the truth of God into our world. That's what it says in John 1:14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as from the one and only Father, full of grace and, full of grace and, full of grace and, truth. He's truth. Truth points to his trustworthiness, but also his reliability. It points to the teaching about God given by Jesus, but also truth points to the saving truth of the gospel, God's nature revealing itself in Jesus. And so the reality of Jesus dying on the cross and conquering the grave reveals truth about who God is through Jesus. Truth is not simply an abstract concept. Truth is a person and truth transforms. And if you give yourself to this truth, if you believe in this truth, to really know Jesus as truth, it changes everything. It changes you. It transforms you. In ministry, i got to be honest, I, I, I see people who claim the name of Jesus, 
call themselves Christians, even come to church maybe every Sunday, and then they live no differently than the world. They live no differently than before they encountered Christianity. And I'm just like, God, does Jesus even make a difference? Does the gospel even impact and transform people these days? And then God opens my eyes, and I see story after story. There's so many stories just in this room. I hear story after story. I can, oh, I wish I had time to share some of your stories with the rest of you. But that's why, by the way, we're doing testimonies every month because we want to hear these stories. So many stories of Jesus changing lives, the truth changing lives, and transforming families, transforming communities, transforming neighborhoods, transforming you, transforming your heart. I see it over and over and over. Jesus is the truth. The truth is a person, and that truth transforms. So Jesus is the way. Jesus is truth. And lastly, Jesus is life. Life is so much more than physical existence. And the world offers counterfeit life in a myriad of ways. Try this, buy that, do this, experience that. It's not real life. The world tells us that the good life is found in appeasing our selfish desires. But that's not actual true life. What is actual true life? In John chapter 1, Philip encounters Jesus and he's like, oh, you're the one. You're the one that we've been looking for for centuries. You're the Savior. You're the Messiah. And then he goes to his friend Nathaniel, and he's like, we found him. We found the Lamb of God. We found him. And Nathaniel's like, Wait, this man from Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip says, come and see. And Nathaniel encounters Jesus, and he agrees. He's like, you're, you're it. You're the king the king of all kings, the son of God. Because, see, when you encounter life, when you find life, you know it. Knowing Jesus is ultimate meaning, ultimate fulfillment, ultimate contentment in life. We have nothing apart from Jesus. And we have everything we need, everything we want in Jesus. In Jesus, we have life. In Jesus, we are home. We see this in 1 John chapter 5, the first epistle of John, as he writes this. He says in verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself, so truth. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, opposite of truth, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. Here's the testimony. Here's the truth. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may have life. Do you know why the Apostle John wrote this fourth gospel? He actually tells us in John 20, verse 31. He says, I write these things that you may believe in the name of the Son of God and have what? Life. He is the source of life to all who follow him by faith. He is life itself. And we think that through Jesus we get eternal life, and we do. But here's the thing. He is eternal life. Kenneth Kangle says it this way. Jesus is the way, reconciliation. Jesus is the truth, illumination. Jesus is the life, regeneration. This is the exclusive gospel. The New Testament knows nothing of universalism, this idea that God will find some way to save everybody. He embodies the way of God, the truth about God, and life 
in God. So how do we get back home? Jesus. Yeah, but how does he become the way for each of us? I think about the story of the prodigal son. You have two sons, an older son and a younger son. The younger son goes to the dad and says, I want my inheritance, which is another way to say, I wish you were dead. That's the only way you can get an inheritance. And the father could have written him out of his will because that was an act of shame, but he does it in grace, in mercy. He says, okay, here you go. And the son goes to foreign lands and he squanders it. He spends it. He's broke, bankrupt, and then a famine hits and he hits rock bottom. All his friends leave. He's got nothing. And so he goes to a pig farm. I don't know if you've ever been to a pig farm. I used to live in, uh, out in the country in farming area in Colorado, and I had a friend who had a pig farm. I remember we'd be in school on the school bus. We'd drive by a pig farm. He'd be like, hmm, smells like money. I'd be like, no, it smells like poop. Um, <laughs> pigs are dirty, stinky, smelly. If you go to a petting zoo, you're not going to, you know, you pet sheep, you pet the little goats, you pet the alpacas and the llamas. There's never a pig because they're disgusting. They're unclean for a reason. Jewish people back then and today declare them unclean. And so that's how desperate this, this young man is. He's at a pig farm working, and he looks at what the pigs are eating, and he gets hungry. His stomach rumbles. He's like, hmm, looks pretty good. And then he comes to his senses and lets go of his offenses, and he says, maybe if I just go back to the father, I could be a servant. And so he goes back, and as he's on his way back, the father sees him from a distance. He's probably sitting on the porch and sees his silhouette, immediately recognizes him as his son, and the father runs to the son. Now, back then in an honor-shame culture, men didn't run, especially in their long robes and everything, but the father ran to the son. And I can imagine the son saying, okay, oh, listen, I, I'm not worthy to be a servant. I'm not worthy to be a slave. I'm not, shh, shh, you are my son. And he restores him. He puts the robe on him, and they have a feast, and he declares him not only his son, but royalty. Because here's the thing. The son changes direction. The son changes course in his life, the way back was repentance. That's what that means, to change direction. It was faith that there would be provided, the Father would provide a provision to be restored to him by grace. Thomas Akempis in the book Imitation of Christ says it this way, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow. I am the truth with which thou must believe. I'm the life which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I'm the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. Jesus is life and truth and the way back to the Father. 